This morning the reading is from John 18. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, and we'll read from verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, he drew back, and they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the ear of the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? These are the words of Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you very much indeed, Ruby. A very warm welcome to you, especially to our visitors. Uh, Cecilia, it's lovely to have you with us. Uh, Cecilia does the children's work, is it at Christ Church Paro? Uh, but not today, and we're delighted that you're here with us. And it's also a great joy to welcome uh, Jemima and Matthew. Uh, Jemima was a member here some years ago, and she is actually the most northerly located of our ex-members because she lives in Edinburgh. Uh, by contrast, Matthew uh, has never been further south than Italy, he was telling me before the service, so he's, um, this is a new experience for him, and uh, he needs to know all about life in South Sudan, Zimbabwe, Malawi, and Cape Town. So do please go up and introduce yourselves afterwards and make them feel at home. But uh, for now, as we turn to God's word, won't you just keep that passage that Ruby read so beautifully for us open in front of you, and um, I will pray and ask for the Lord's, Lord's help. Well, Heavenly Father, we confess that if we are to hear your voice this morning, we are fully dependent on your Holy Spirit. 
Please pour out your spirit upon us in fullness, that our deaf ears might hear, that our blind eyes might see, and that our dull minds might be gloriously renewed. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. One of the most um, imaginative authors of the last hundred years or so was a man by the name of H.G. Wells. Um, His books covered a wide variety of subjects, including history, uh, politics, and he was a great writer of short stories. Uh, In fact, one of his short stories was so marvellous it was used as the inspiration for an episode of Star Trek. Uh, But Wells was best known, actually, as a writer of science fiction. Uh, The titles might be unfamiliar to some of the younger ones of you here, but, for example, uh, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, uh, The War of the Worlds, The Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, they all became classics during his lifetime, and indeed all those books are still surprisingly popular today. H.G. Wells considered himself to be religious. But like so many brilliant men, uh, the God he believed in was a God of his own imagination. So instead of beginning with what God has revealed about himself in Holy Scripture, uh, H.G. Wells started by looking at the world around him, and he derived a mental picture of God from what he saw. In one of his essays, he gives us his conclusion. Just listen to what he says. It's it's rather amusing. You can laugh. He says this, quote, The world is like a great stage production, produced and managed by God. The curtain rises, the set is perfect, a treat to every eye. The characters are top quality. Everything goes really well, until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown, causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, which pushes a table into a wall, which in turn knocks down the scenery, which brings everything down on the head of the actors. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, God is running around, shouting orders, pulling strings, desperately trying to restore order from chaos, but alas, he's unable to do so. Poor God, according to H.G. Wells, he is a very little, limited God. Now, although that was written more than 80 years ago, it is actually, I think, a very up-to-date attitude to God. Many people today believe God exists, but they say, at least in their hearts, is he really in control? Or is he merely reacting helplessly to one crisis after another as they unfold before him? Now, at first sight, the passage that we're looking at this morning might appear to confirm that view. Uh, Throughout his ministry... Jesus has said that his primary objective, the focus of his mission, is to make the Father known to the world. 
Uh, By this stage in the gospel, he's already done that through his miracles and teaching. But last week, we saw in the verse immediately before this passage, Jesus says he hasn't finished. So have a quick look, will you, at chapter 17 and verse 26. Remember, over the last three Sundays, we've seen that the whole of chapter 17 is one long prayer by Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus says to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. But now, in our passage this morning, within the space of just a few verses, Jesus is arrested. So at first sight, it seems, doesn't it, as if events have moved decisively out of Jesus' control. How can Jesus possibly fulfill his mission of making the Father known when his enemies appear to have the upper hand? It seems like H.G. Wells was right and that God has got a major damage limitation exercise on his hands. And yet, if we read the passage carefully, we find exactly the opposite is true. And so to help us, I want us to think about the passage this morning under three headings, which all begin with the letter M. So first, we're going to consider the mastery of Jesus. Because far from being helpless, we're going to see that Jesus is actually very much in control. Next, we're going to look at the majesty of Jesus because at the very moment when he appears to be weak and vulnerable, Jesus gives an astonishing glimpse of his divine power. And then lastly, we're going to look at the mercy of Jesus. And I think we can all agree when we see it that his attitude to his enemies is totally unexpected. So let's get going then with the mastery of Jesus in verses 1 to 4. I want us to notice, first of all, that Jesus chooses the location of his arrest. And you'll find this in verses 1 and 2. Just look at verse 1 with me. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So think about it. Uh, If Jesus had wanted to avoid being arrested, there were lots of places he could have gone to hide. He could have gone into the mountains outside Jerusalem to hide in a cave. Or he could have gone to a remote village. There were plenty of them. But John tells us that Jesus deliberately goes to the place which Judas knew was a favorite meeting spot for Jesus with the disciples. Jesus knew that Judas would find him without any difficulty whatsoever. 
But there's more to it than that. What was this place? Well, our translation says that it was an olive grove. But the original says, quite simply, that Jesus entered a garden. Nearly all the other translations have the word garden and nothing else. Now, remember at this point that uh, John was writing his gospel quite considerably later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It had a lifetime to reflect on the significance of all these events. And better brains than mine believe that John is deliberately inviting the reader to make a comparison with God's first dealings with humanity in a different garden. We haven't got time to look at every detail, but as I was preparing, I was struck by one particular connection. You see, when we read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, what's the impression we have of life in the Garden of Eden? Well, the Garden of Eden was a place of fellowship. God used to walk there, didn't he, in the cool of the evening. It was a place of communion and intimacy between God and man. But Adam, of course, disobeyed God, and he shattered that relationship for every generation since. And so today, of course, we're still living with the effects, aren't we, of that first rebellion. And now here, in John chapter 18, we find Jesus, the Son of God, in a different garden. And this garden was also a place of great fellowship and no doubt many happy memories for Jesus and his disciples. But now in this garden, Jesus is offering himself as a willing sacrifice in order to restore the fellowship between God and man that was shattered back in Eden. Well, it's only a detail. I must leave you to think about whether you find that persuasive or not. But what I think is unarguable is that Jesus chooses the location of his arrest. It is not chosen for him. Please notice also that Jesus chooses the timing of his arrest. Now, if you've been carefully reading through John's Gospel, and I hope you have, you'll have noticed that there are a number, of, a number of times when people have attempted to kill Jesus. All of them have come to nothing. Uh, on, on previous occasions, Jesus has always avoided, avoided being caught. And in each of those instances, we are explicitly told that the timing was wrong. The time was not yet. But now, it's Passover and Jesus leads his disciples across the Kidron Valley, and that's an important detail. So I hope they'll appear on the screen right now uh, a map of Jerusalem in the time of the Lord Jesus. And I don't know whether you can see that, but uh, the Kidron Valley is there to the right. But can you see that it is immediately adjacent to the temple? It runs parallel to the outer wall of the temple. And archaeologists tell us that there was a drain 
which ran from the temple down into the Kidron Valley to drain away the blood from the sacrifices. Now, during Passover week, more than 200,000 lambs were killed on the temple altar, and their blood ran down into the valley below. Now, I've no idea how much blood would come out of 200,000 lambs, but clearly it would be hundreds of thousands of litres, wouldn't it? So when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, they couldn't possibly avoid noticing that the rocks were stained red with the blood of sacrifice. And no doubt, as the disciples looked back on the events of that night, the blood from all of those lambs would have reminded them that Jesus died when Israel was celebrating the Passover. And of course, the Passover looked back, didn't it, to the night when the angel of death passed over every household that was protected by the blood of a lamb and the firstborn son in that household was rescued from the judgment of God. Now you see, when we remember that background, I think we begin to understand why Jesus behaved as he did in verse 4. Have a quick look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, did what? Run away and hide? No. Try and talk his way out of a tricky situation? No. No, verse 4 says, He went out and asked them, Who is it you want? In other words, Jesus stepped out boldly to confront his enemies. And of course, the question he's really asking is, well, who do you think you're dealing with? And that, of course, is John's question for you and me this morning. As we read the Gospels, and especially as we read the account of the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus on earth, John is asking us, who do you think you're dealing with? Well, keep that question in your mind as we move on to the next section, which is verses 5 to 8, where John shows us the majesty of Jesus. Now, we need to, to use our imaginations here, and I do hope that your imaginations are in good working order this morning. Because we've already been told that Judas is guiding a detachment of soldiers to arrest Jesus. The word detachment in the original is a military term for a force of about a thousand soldiers. In practice, especially in peacetime, it was often less than that, maybe closer to 600. But uh, what you need to remember is that, you know, we're not talking about Dad's army here. These are battle-hardened Roman soldiers. So think Navy SEALs, not new recruits. Picture the scene. It's nighttime. And from the garden, Jesus and the eleven 
can see the lanterns of this large military force making their way down the hill from Jerusalem towards the garden. No doubt they can hear the clanking of their armour and the weapons, and as they get closer, they can hear their voices as well. To the disciples, it's a terrifying spectacle. They're thinking, you know, surely this is game over. This is the end of the road. They must have wanted to run. To the soldiers, of course, it's entirely routine and rather tiresome. Um, a lot of fuss about just 12, 11 men, actually, led by a man called Jesus, who came from a village that nobody had even heard of. So as far as they're concerned, Jesus is no one very special. Why all the fuss about Jesus of Nazareth? But then look at the middle of verse 5. Jesus identifies himself. And in the original language, he uses only two words. I am. The word he is not there in the original. And as some of you know, I am is the personal name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. It's the name God used when he commissioned Moses to deliver his people from slavery with mighty signs and wonders. And here, Jesus claims that name for himself. And look what happens next, verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now just picture that. To an uninformed spectator, just one man, alone, apparently defenceless, standing before 600 heavily armed, well-trained soldiers. The outcome must be beyond doubt. But instead, the entire troop falls to the ground, powerless before him. And so you see, for just a moment, Jesus allows a tiny fraction of his divine power to overwhelm his enemies. And because we know Jesus' real identity, we know, don't we, that this was exactly the same power by which God had destroyed the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. It was the same power that Jesus had used to still the storm, to heal the sick, and even to raise the dead. So there's absolutely no question that if he had so desired, he could have destroyed all of them on the spot. But the question we need to ask is, well, why did Jesus do this? What's the point? I suppose in one sense, it was a warning to this tiny army that they had seriously misjudged him. Now, they were in way over their heads. And just as an aside, it's not the main point, but just as an aside, what do you suppose Judas was thinking as he struggled back to his feet? But surely the main point of this display of divine power was to show that these soldiers could not possibly have arrested Jesus 
unless Jesus had been willing for them to do so. Isn't that the point? John is reminding us, you see, that Jesus went to his suffering and death willingly. Now think about that. If that is true, and it seems to me that you'd have to work very hard indeed to make the text say something else, then don't you think that he is just as willing to accept you and to forgive you, whoever you are and whatever you've done? If Jesus wasn't forced to go to the cross against his will, but went willingly for the entire human race, why would he ever turn you away? John has shown us the mastery of Jesus. He was in control of his own arrest. He's shown us the majesty of Jesus, who went to his death willingly and freely, when he had the power to not do that. He could have avoided it. And lastly, he shows us the mercy of Jesus, verse 8b to 11. So there you have Jesus and the 11, confronted by approximately 600 experienced soldiers. Verse 8, uh, Jesus says to them, If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And uh, John comments, verse 9, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now we've just been told in this passage that Jesus knew all about the agonies in every detail that lay before him. And yet at this critical moment, his first thought is for his disciples. Jesus surrenders himself so that they can go free. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the love that Jesus has for all his followers. But was he concerned only for the eleven? Fair question. Well, time and time again in these chapters, we find that John shows us that the events in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth were actually pointing to a far bigger picture. And in verse 9, John tells us that this was a fulfillment of a promise Jesus had made much earlier in his ministry. Your Bible has a footnote. It tells you it's a reference to chapter 6 and verse 39. So keep a finger in John 18, turn back in your Bible to uh, chapter 6, John chapter 6, and verse 39. Verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
So there's John, probably in his late 70s, early 80s, when he wrote this gospel. He's had a lifetime to think about this. And he understood that what Jesus did for his disciples in the garden the night before he died is actually a picture of what he does for everybody who looks to him and believes in him. And just as Jesus stood, as it were, between his disciples and those Roman soldiers and protected them from shame and from death, so Jesus does exactly the same thing for every true believer in every generation. He stands between us and everything that would cut us off from God's presence and make it impossible for us ever to have intimacy and fellowship with him, either in this life or in the life of the world to come. How does he do that? Come back to chapter 18. Because this actually, I think, is the main point of the whole passage. In uh, the closing verses of our passage, you'll notice that Jesus says that the Father has given him two things. In verse 9, Jesus says the Father has given him a people. Do you see that? He says, I have not lost one of those you gave me. So the Father has given Jesus certain individuals. Now, we've already talked about that back in chapter 17. We won't go back over it now. And then in verse 11, Jesus says that the Father has given him a cup. He says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That's Old Testament language. And in the Old Testament, the cup was a way of talking about God's wrath, his anger. And the point of the imagery is that the cup contains the full measure of the wrath of God. So not just a tiny sip, not just a taste, all of it. And the cup must be drained to the dregs. So there's a place in Isaiah where God speaks to the people of Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. He says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to the dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Now the point in John 18 is that these two gifts are connected. Jesus knows that all of us by nature deserve God's wrath. We've all rebelled against God. We've all broken the relationship with God for which we were created. The problem, of course, is that most of us simply refuse to see it. Because so many of the things that we do wrong, well, they initially feel quite nice. Perhaps bearing a grudge against somebody who's hurt us, or trashing the reputation of somebody at work, or in ministry, or harboring lustful thoughts. Initially, all of those things can actually feel quite nice. 
you feel kind of vindicated, you feel justified in feeling those things. But of course, sometime later, might be a few hours, might be a few days, guilt follows. You know that what you said and did was wrong. Now that feeling is just a tiny reminder. It's a God-given echo that by ourselves we deserve God's wrath. All of us do. I do. You do. But you see, in this passage we're being told that Jesus wants you to look to him, to believe in him. And that means that you must let him drink the cup of God's wrath for you. Can I ask you this morning, have you done that? As we leave the passage, just think, will you, about the high priest's servant in verse 10, dear old Malchus. Who is Malchus? Well, he's come to the garden, hasn't he, with the people who are intent on killing Christ. So Malchus is an enemy of Jesus. And Peter, uh, leaping to Jesus' defense, slices off his right ear. Uh, we don't know much about Peter's swordsmanship. We don't know whether he was a brilliant swordsman and did exactly what he meant to do, or whether he actually wanted to cut his head off and missed. He was a fisherman, so you can do the maths. But the point is, isn't it, that Jesus will not let Peter finish the job. And in Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus healed the high priest's servant with a touch, put his ear back on. Now, think about the significance of that. The very last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry was an act of astonishing mercy to one of his enemies. Perhaps that's an invitation. Maybe it's a nudge to someone here this morning. Maybe when you walked into the building this morning, you arrived here as an enemy of God. But perhaps you can now see, if only in a small way, that Jesus is offering his mercy to you, that he's willing to drink the cup of God's wrath for you so that you can become a member of God's family. Now, my friend, if you can see that, can I tell you that that is a sign that God is calling you personally this morning and he's inviting you to respond. So we're going to be quiet and I'm going to invite you to take this opportunity to come to Jesus for forgiveness, for healing, and for a fresh start. Let's be quiet.